Get the next 10 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £1. There's no commitment and you can cancel at any time. But hurry, this offer runs for a week only. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash sale. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, The Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Cindy Yu and I'm joined by James Forsyth and Katie Gorse. So the queue to see the Queen lying in state is now stretching over two miles long and preparations are well underway for next week's funeral. But James, there's a slight diplomatic minefield here, isn't there? In that almost all world leaders have been invited, obviously not all are going to come, but certain allies like Biden are coming and he's insisted on using his own car. Whereas there's also been a confusion about who from the Chinese side is coming. So there's a lot of work for the Foreign Office to be getting on with. I mean, you bring together this many world leaders in one place such a collection of egos there are always going to be these kind of protocol issues and also particularly going to be protocol issues given that that as often is the case at royal events the british government is trying to encourage people to kind of get on a bus don't don't bring their own security details because it, it, it essentially further gums up attempts to kind of move things through central london for some people like the u.s president this is obviously kind of their security demands are non-negotiable and i'm sure ways will be found of accommodating that i think the other interesting thing here is the diplomatic were it wheels within wheels here we, we've seen that that emmanuel macron's I think mean, very generous tribute to the, to the Queen straight after her death. She, he is coming to the funeral. And he's spoken to, as Joe Biden did, spoke to, to King Charles last night. And again, I think he is talking about the unbreakable bond between the UK and France. I think what, what Emmanuel Macron is essentially trying to say is, from his point of view, this, this relationship goes on, even if he had a very difficult relationship with Boris Johnson and the current Prime Minister hasn't decided whether he's a friend or a foe yet. So I think he is trying to, he is trying to use this moment to say, look, you know, France has this relationship with the UK, whatever the political difficulties there may be between the various leaders. I mean, the China thing is actually a question, which is, where does this government wish to stand on China? Now, the most hawkish people in China in the Tory party say, look, they are doing awful things in Xinjiang and, you know, we should not be allowed nothing more than an ambassador. We should be treated as a kind of prior state in the same way that Russia has been, for example, in its invitation. Other people can argue for a slightly more pragmatic course. It sounds from the South China Morning Post today like the Chinese vice premier will be coming. And I mean, this is this question which Truss's rhetoric as foreign secretary during the leadership campaign was very hawkish on China. But I think the kind of question now becomes, you know, how, how do you best manifest that hawkishness? And does that mean placing China essentially in the same box that Russia currently is? Or does it exist in a slightly different box? Now, I think in some ways that, that Russia is a more, I think China is actually a more worrying threat than Russia is. You know, so that, that, there is that question. And so I think we wait to see how all these diplomatic relations are handled. I think one thing I would say, though, is it is a funeral. And that does generally act in, 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 in international relations as well as in, as, in, as, in, as in normal life as a restraint on mm. people's behaviour. And I think the other thing as well is if you look at one of the Queen's diplomatic skills was she often acted as a restraining influence on people's behaviour when they were around. If you think back to some of the most difficult Commonwealth summits in the 1980s, she undoubtedly 
had that effect. If you think as recently as the G7 in Cornwall, I mean, again, you know, all the Trump state visit, you know, you know even leaders who normally may normally struggled with normal diplomatic protocols and, and niceties, they they tended to be on better behaviour with the Queen than they were in, in many other situations. And I suspect the same thing will apply on Monday. Well, I have to say from the Chinese side, the decision to send Wang Xishan is actually, I think, a show of respect for the Queen. And as you say, James, this kind of ability of her to transcend politics after all it is a funeral Wang Zixian is a key Xi Jinping ally from before Xi Jinping was even president of China and so to send anyone you know not senior would have been a snub I think and actually these China hawks in parliament you know they would have been equally up in arms had China only sent someone lower down the ranking so it is like an important part to show that China understands the British royal family and the importance of the monarchy to this country and it's also an interesting diplomatic test for, for, for King Charles who has generally tended to absent himself when it comes to to Chinese leaders, famously referred to them as terrible old waxworks, as the after the handover of Hong Kong, and you know, and his views on Tibet are as Prince of Wales were well known. So I think I think I think how he handles that to him is is, is another example of it, of this of the challenges for him of his new role and some of the things that he could do as Prince of Wales in terms of making his private views semi-clear semi will be more, more difficult as King. I think, I think Matthew Paris and Charles Moore have different but fascinating takes on that question in The Spectator. It's on, on sale today. Now, Katie, in other news, the new Chancellor, Kwasi Kwarten, is understandably working very hard in the background throughout all of this. And one idea that he seems to be pushing forward is a scrapping of caps for banker bonuses that were brought into place after the financial crisis. Tell us about that. Yeah, so this is one of the ideas under consideration. I mean, ultimately, of course, politicians aren't talking about any of their plans for government or government business, but behind behind the scenes, ministers have not stopped working. And this is the idea of, as you say, scrapping the cap on bankers' bonuses as a sign of his new Big Bang 2.0 approach to city regulations after Brexit. Now, I don't think a final decision has been made on this yet, but ultimately this the cap was introduced by EU legislation in 2014. So it's something you can do to say, this is part of our Brexit shake-up, um, you know, this is how we are going to unleash potential. I think it's an interesting one because actually lots of people think it could make sense if you want to keep the city competitive. But of course it does, again, lean into, I think, a, probably a more decisive and unapologetic stance by Liz Truss than I think some of her predecessors in terms of I think Liz Truss and her chancellor are more happy to argue for things that have the potential to be unpopular or play to Labour in terms of scoring points you can already imagine Labour saying as you are all you know struggling in a cost of living crisis they're allowing bankers to have these disgusting bonuses Mm. playing politics on that level but I think it also just goes back even to the windfall tax where Liz Truss rather than dancing around the edges on it is quite happy to get into these debates Mm. so you saw it a on the windfall tax where Keir Starmer and Liz Truss and their first prime minister's questions and obviously before the news of the queen happened actually having an exchange of ideas. And then also, I think, when Liz Truss appeared on Laura Koonsberg's new BBC show, Mm. and she said, actually, I think we are too focused on redistribution and not on growth. And I think it's just another sign that actually this government, at least for now, wants to just take on these arguments, even with the risk that Labour actually probably would be quite happy to see some of these policies come in. James, what do you make of that risk? Because it's not an insignificant risk to portray the Tory party as the nasty party again, the ones who basically only work for the rich people. Look, 
I mean, that is obviously how Labour will attack it. I actually think getting rid of his cap on bankers' bonuses is, is sensible, right? One of the things you have to do is protect the city of London's competitiveness post-Brexit. And this cap on bankers' bonuses was regarded by the UK back in the day when it was an EU member as such a threat that the UK government, when George Osborne was chancellor, initiated kind of legal proceedings against the European Commission to try and block it. So keeping it in place when you don't need to seems to me foolish. Now, some people in the city say, well, look, the banks have found all sorts of ways round this and so but I, I still don't see why given that, that, that they, they, they they might not be the most popular people but we want as many millionaire bankers in London as possible but I think the, the challenge actually in terms of uh, the mechanics of the policy rather than the politics that Katie was talking about is I think you have to make sure that it is done in such a way that you that these bonuses aren't endangering financial stability in the way that they I think, I think you could argue they possibly did contribute to the 2008 crash by encouraging a very short-termist mindset. I mean, there are ways that you can do that, you know, ensuring that, that bonuses are paid over three years in stock, with some of them cancelable, if the, the trades go wrong or, or, the, or, or the, the mergers, do, these things do not deliver value in the way that they were intended to. But I think you have to safeguard London's competitiveness. And I think that you know, th- things that help London in its competitiveness vis-a-vis New York and as well as European financial centres is, I think, a a sensible and necessary move. I mean, just the crucial question, though, is that you've got to manage to... to, to, you've got to manage to liberalise the bonus rules in such a way that you aren't endangering financial stability by encouraging very short-termist behaviour from 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 bankers and so i think if you if you if you can deal with that caveat then i think that i think it's worth i think politically i think katie is right where labor will ride into the attack i personally think that on bankers bonuses this is the one performance-based part of their pay and i think i think that bankers bonuses is actually an easier thing to defend lifting the cap on that than not having a windfall tax for example but those people who are fans of the question time is it harry enfield sketch the bankers the bankers the bonuses the bonuses yes we're going to see some of that but i i, I actually think that this is a, as a calculated risk this is one worth taking in terms of the city of london's competitiveness. now katie finally the government may also u-turn on the boris johnson's uh, legacy which is this anti-obesity drive happening in the country which we've talked about quite a lot and quite passionately on this podcast so are calorie counts on the out again Yes, remember, Boris Johnson obviously launched this anti-obesity drive, particularly after his own health scare on COVID. And I think he felt that his weight had contributed to that and came back very refreshed. What was the phrase he used again when he was talking? Don't be a fatty in your 50s. Yeah, as James revealed at the time, exactly. <laughs> so so he came in with that with that enthusiasm for the agenda, but then it did lapse over time in the sense that you had a situation whereby they started to water down parts of the beauty strategy. There was talk of doing this. And I think particularly as Boris Johnson's position within his own party became weaker, obviously the demands when it comes to things, I would say watering the land is quite red meat for Tory MPs. Mm. Um, They rose and therefore... The, the latest now, Liz Truss as Prime Minister, is the UK government can scrap its entire anti-obesity strategy. So this is going further than just uh, not bringing in some of the aspects of it. Um, and this is after ministers ordered an official review of the measures designed to deter people from eating junk food. Guardian was the first to report this. I think... I think it's in keeping where Liz Truss stands on this. Ultimately, she has been someone who has always spoken up in terms of 
individual freedoms and anti-nanny state. And I think lots of the things on this, uh, including the calorie counts, there are lots of supporters of Liz Truss who are very anti them and just mm. do not think it is something a conservative government should be bringing in. I think there is a question of bandwidth at the moment, though, in the sense that there is a lot that Liz Truss has to focus on in terms of cost of living, mm. in terms of the protocol, and how many fights do you want to pick and China. <laughs> James, you once advocated banning even having snacks by checkouts in supermarkets. And I remember the row that you had with Kate Andrews at the time about it. How do you feel about this? Direction? I think you have to face up to the fact that excess consumption of unhealthy foods, sugar and salt, have negative externalities and they put a greater pressure on the National Health Service. And so in a kind of Pigovian way, I would tax that. I think, for example, the sugar tax, right? The sugar tax only raises £130 million. The reason it only raises £130 million is that the soft drinks companies have, by and large, changed the ways in which they mm-hmm. are producing these drinks to reduce the sugar content. Which that, Katie Balls is unhappy no, that, about. That, that, that is surely a, a good thing, right? Um, <laughs> and, you know, because that, that is healthier. I think we need to... We can't. We have to deal with the fact that we have a proper obesity crisis in this country. And we need to think about how we handle that. I think we should teach children how to cook and, and so that people know how to eat healthily. I think we can't... I mean, we just have this assumption that people know, how, know this stuff. I don't think they do. I think... All primary school age children should be walking at least a mile at school. That, every, that, every day? Yes. Every day. That level of activity. How much do you walk every day? Oh, I think I generally walk about 18,000 steps every day. Oh my God, um, every day. I think there is an issue about supermarkets' behaviour in terms of encouraging kind of pest, pest of power, making it difficult for people to get out of supermarkets without buying these things. And also, I, I think the other thing is, I, think, I, think, I do think there is a question about advertising junk food before at times when children are watching TV, you know, is that, does that encourage healthy habits or not? I think all of these things are worth thinking about. And I think it is just worth reflecting. But there are, it just, there are clear negative externalities to the UK's excessive consumption of unhealthy food and what it does to pressure on the National Health Service. You know, in some ways, if we want to have the form of healthcare that we currently have, and I, I, you, know, you can't ignore this obesity problem. It, it, is a, it is a genuine issue and we need to do a lot more to, to try and encourage healthier lifestyles. That obviously encourages people to be more active. But as Nigel Lawson once pointed out in the last spectator, it also does require reducing the amount of unhealthy food that people consume. Katie and James, thanks very much. And thank you very much for listening as well. Join us again tomorrow.